Welcome to Humans of Twitter, a podcast where we discover the stories behind the people behind the Twitter accounts. People that are interesting, opinionated, and surprising. I'm your host, Steve Malk, and today I'm speaking with someone who describes themselves as I'm the Kimber in Clairsey, Shane and Kimber at Mix 94.5 Perth. Humans of Twitter is their stories in their words, in a little more than 140 characters. Please welcome today's edition to the Humans of Twitter list, Kimber Cahill. Hi there. Hello, Kimber. In social settings, how do you introduce yourself? I just say, hi, I'm Kimber, and then I realise I should probably tell them where I work, depending on the circumstances. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have many social settings outside of work? Oh, yeah, I do. I do. I like to party a bit. I like to meet a lot of people. I'm very social. I'm the person who will talk to anyone in the line at the bank. Has that ever brought you undone? You know what? I don't think it ever has. I think it's only ever benefited me. I think that a lot of people have said in life that they've gone, oh, luck just follows you around. I said, luck doesn't follow me. I put myself out there. What, what do you mean by that? You put yourself out there and then, you, you know, things happen. I think because I'm naturally chatty and confident and social that I meet a lot of people that a lot of other people might not meet and just might overlook. And so I have a lot of conversations with people that I maybe wasn't expecting and it can take me in different directions in my life. And people think of me when they want me to do a job or they think of me, mm-hmm. you know, when they might need me for something else. Has Do you overshare in those situations, do you think? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a massive oversharer. Like, I, I think I would, I, oh, you know what, I want to tell you that I'm a private person, but I'm not a private person. I'm just not. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I keep things private if I think they're going to affect somebody else in my life. But outside sure. of that, I'm pretty much an open book. If people want to have a really honest, true conversation, then i I'm going to be that person. Have you developed those boundaries, that line, because you have in the past shared something about somebody close to you and that has they've been upset or that's gone badly? Oh, yeah. It's definitely happened on air. Like in radio, I think I've said stories that I think are quite harmless and then the person involved has heard them and and not thought it was harmless at all. And, you know, looking back, I still think that what I said wasn't that bad, but it didn't appear to them that way. How do you cope with the fact that working in radio, the the pressure is on every day, you've got to have stories, stuff to share about yourself. It's become very uh, focused, hasn't it? Commercial FM radio is very much about you guys as the hosts and, and conversation starters. Oh, I did this and it was really stupid. Have you ever done those sorts of things? Opening up phoners and that kind of connection. How does that work for you then, given that you've got a finite amount of time in your life to have experiences that can bleed into that? Yeah, I'm quite happy to share things about my personal life on air, but I definitely find like, I don't know if it's a pressure, but if you don't go out on the weekend or you don't talk to other people and you don't have experiences, you very quickly discover that you have nothing new to bring to the table. And what happens then? Oh, it's awkward because then you start going through news articles and you start trying to prep information (laughs) and make up stories. I mean, I I find too that you have so many life experiences. You know, I suppose it sounds cliche when they say everyone's got a book in them. Um, But if you meet new people, that's when 
all the stories that you've forgotten about come out. So if you keep surrounding yourself with all the same friends, you don't continue to talk about the stories that you all already know the ending to. But if you meet somebody new and out of, you know, you might just say, oh, hey, oh, so you like horse riding. And then you think, oh, hey, I went horse riding once. Remember that time and the, the horse backed me into the water and then I had to do this and this and this. And so it's mm. a good way of generating content that already existed for you um, but maybe hasn't you know, come to light in a while. And I used to joke with people in my life and say, when it comes to me on air, um, if I say, if it happened to a friend, then it happened to me. And if it happened five years ago, it happened on the weekend. Yeah. So the the stories are all true and they're all genuine and they're all real. But, um, you know, sometimes you have to fabricate when it happened or who it happened to. Uh, X's off limits. No. No, absolutely. Oh, like, and I'm, I'm a pretty kind person in my relationships, so I don't have any exes that are really out to get me. But I did find mm. it quite humorous. We did a talk break once about the first kiss you ever had, and I described the kiss as not being very great. And then we thought it would be funny if everyone called up and named their first kiss with first and last names. Um, and I did that because I didn't think it would be a problem. And Mm. he contacted me on Facebook (laughs) because (laughs) he had actually been taking a flight between Sydney and Melbourne at the time. And when he landed at the airport, he had 32 messages on his phone from people in Perth who had heard me talking about kissing him. (laughs) He took it pretty well. He took it pretty well. He just kind of went, so I heard you were talking about kissing me and we had a bit of a laugh about it and, you know, I think there was enough water under the bridge by then. Goodness me. What's the title of the book in you, Kimber? Oh, wow, that's a good one. Um, just off the top of my head, I would say that the book is called Why Not No Regrets. That's really interesting because to be someone that's like, you know, why not? No regrets. There'll have been a couple of regrets in that process for you, surely. You know what? Maybe it's just because I don't label them as regrets. I kind of feel like I've gone through life living everything in chronological order. Mm-hmm. Like one event has had to lead me to a particular point. Otherwise, I wouldn't have ended up at that point in the first place. So, um, I, I don't have regrets. I mean, you can have fallouts with friends, you can have bad relationships, you can have things happen to you, but I think I take everything for what it was at the time and I feel like every choice I make is based on the information I had then. So it's, it's you know, mm-hmm. easy in hindsight to look back and go, oh, why did you do that when all of these things were going on? And But I make all my choices based on what I know right then. And so I think that's kind of guided me pretty well. So I I don't, oh, you know what? I've got one regret. I've mm. got one regret. And actually I was just talking about it this morning um, with my co-host off air because we were talking about opening other people's mail and like when, yes. when mail comes to your house and the person doesn't live there anymore, do you throw it in the bin? Do you press, re- do you write return to sender? How do you handle it? And I told him this story of when I was 18 and I moved out with friends of mine who turned out to be not very nice people. But um, what happened is this Christmas card came one year and it had no return address. It wasn't for anybody in the house. And the boys that I lived with decided that it would be fun to open it up. 
Now, I would never open anyone else's mail, and so I was totally mm. against the idea. But they opened the card, and it was very simple. All it said was to whatever the lady's name was, love dad. Or I think it said, I love you, dad, right? And that was it. And so it was thrown in the bin, no big deal. And then a number of months later, I opened the door, there's a knock at the door and there's this woman standing there and she says, look, this might sound a little bit strange, but I used to live in this house years ago um, and I was just seeing if anything had come here for me because my father just passed away and he and I haven't spoken in seven years and I was hoping that he might have reached out to me before he died. And... I think because I was so shocked and I was standing at the door looking at this poor woman and I think I felt guilt and I felt, you know, regret about opening this mail and, and I don't even, I don't know what it was, but I just didn't have the courage to say to her, oh yeah, we opened your mail. And so I just said, oh no, we didn't receive anything. And I let her walk away and I have, I still think about it. I was 18, right? Like it was a long time ago and I was young and I probably didn't realize the importance of it at the time, but I'm like, that card, he did tell her that he loved her. You know, in seven years, that's all she had. And I mm. I didn't have the courage to tell her that we opened her mail. Like, it, seems, it just sounds completely stupid when you say it out loud, you know. But um, I regret that. Have you ever said, I love you to someone and they haven't said it back? Um, no. No. I think I am usually, I think I'm usually the second person to say it. The returnee. I think I'm the returnee. Yeah. I I cannot recall a time that I've told someone that I love them and I didn't get it back. Is that because you're guarded in relationships until you hit that comfort point? I don't want to put myself out there that much that if I say it and they don't say it back or something, then I'll feel rejected. No, it's only because I... I say it when I feel it. Mm. I say it when I feel it. I, I'm a person who believes everybody should know that they've been loved at some point. I'm the person who says everyone should keep their love letters, even if you still, even if you can't stand the person and you never want to see them again, because at one point in your life, you might want to look back and remember that someone cared for you that much. So I feel like if you love someone and you tell them and it freaks them out and it makes them run then that's okay, um, but at least they would know that they're actually pretty special and pretty unique and that you felt that way about them. What's that experience of love for you? What does it feel like? Um, it's pretty interesting. I think it feels it feels exciting and it feels passionate and it feels... Um, it feels strong. Like I feel like I can achieve anything. Mm. Like I feel like when I'm in love, I can, I can do anything. Like everything is better. Everything tastes better. Everything smells better. I'm capable mm. of anything. You know, you can give me any challenge and I'm ready to go. I think that it empowers me. Um, and in terms of what it feels like um, with the other person, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's a physical a physical thing, I suppose, you know, the butterflies in the stomach and stuff like that, maybe, but more so I think the way it feels emotionally affects me. What happened the last time you got really hurt? Oh, the last time I got really hurt, 
probably the breakup with my ex. Mm. Um, I thought the relationship was just swell. <laughs> I, was, I was having a great time. Um, I thought we were really good together. I thought everything was fantastic. We've been together about a year. Um, mm. Lots of fun, lots of good times, no real issues. Um, and without warning, broke up with me over the phone. And just like absolutely zero notice. Like he'd actually stayed at my house the night before and made comment in the car on the way home saying, when we live together, I think it's probably best that you move into my place rather than him move into my, like he suggested that I move into his place rather than him move into mine because he was more centrally located. Um, Mm. And then the next day, like, I called him to say, what time do you want to go to dinner? And he just sounded a bit off. And I was like, is everything okay? And he goes, oh, I just, you know, yeah, we'll just go to dinner and we'll, you know, I'll talk to you later. And I was like, no, well, I'm I'm good. I'm listening. I'm driving. Is everything okay? And I was in the car. <laughs> I didn't want Bluetooth and just oh. driving down the freeway. And he said, um, I just don't love you anymore. <laughs> and I was like, uh, what? Um it was really weird. And then I and I just was crying on the freeway like a mad woman. And then I said, well, do I come over? And he was like, I don't know. And so I forced myself to go to his house. And he sort of stood at the door, opened the door and stood at the door and tried to talk to me at the door. Like wouldn't even let me in the house. Like I had to actually say, can I come in? Wow. Um, and I remember that being really hurtful. I think potentially just because I never saw it coming. And, you know, I was genuinely in love with him. But um, I think it was just a difficult one to get over because I kept thinking there was some sort of mistake, some sort of mistake had been made <laughs> and then he would wake up one day and go, what am I doing? Uh, but that, yeah. that day did not come. <laughs> did you lose anything physical in that relationship, like a toothbrush or that sort of thing? No. In fact, it was even more embarrassing than that is that he borrowed a, a, something like a piece of machinery or something from my dad. Oh. And, um, he had to return it. And so he took any item that I left at his house. And I mean, like down to the beach towel, you know, oh. and, and took it all in a bag and dropped it off at my parents' house. <laughs> so, my parents were like, oh, he's come by and he's dropped all your things off. And I was like, oh, and I, I, I suppose I, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess that's the right thing to do is to give back my things. But it was seriously, it was a beach towel and some, some like five kilo arm weights and, um, you know, a couple of pieces of moisturiser and stuff I'd left in the shower, (laughs) which is just really sad to look at when it's in a bag. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is. Yeah, really sad. What was life like for you before radio? Fantastic. It's not to suggest that it's not fantastic now. I've, sure. I think I've always really loved life. I've always been super positive and I had so much going on. I've lived a very full life with lots of uh, interests and not hobbies, I'd say passions um, Yeah, that were really exciting for me. What was work before radio? Uh Immediately before, I was just doing some office temp gigs, things like that. Like nothing, I wouldn't commit to anything. Um, And I was a high school teacher, 
a drama coordinator, high school teacher for like six months um, until I packed it in. Um, and prior to that, I was uh, running an independent theatre company with some of my colleagues and touring the world with theatre shows and doing stand-up comedy. Do you, do you still do any of that drama comedy stuff apart from whatever, you know, how your radio experience? No, I don't. I tried to do a show for Fringe Festival uh, just at the start of this year and I could not keep up with the rehearsal schedule. It was so hard to do radio and rehearsals at the same time. Um, I couldn't keep it up, but I still very much, my gut and my heart still rests in theatre. So whenever I go and see a show, when people take their bow, I cry. I cry, at every, even if it's a bad show. Uh, it doesn't even have to be good. Uh, as soon as they take their bow, I cry. And it's weird because I feel like I'm missing out on it a bit, but I don't want to give up radio. You know, like I love my position in radio and I I sort of think that maybe at this period in my life I just I can't have both. I can't have everything, you know what I mean? Um, but I and, – and stand-up was a funny thing. Stand-up I fell into accidentally – um, because I lost a bet at a party and I claimed that mm. Melissa Etheridge was the lead singer of the Divinals. She's clearly oh. not, but I just, no. I'd had a bit to drink and I just, sometimes even when I'm wrong, I sell it like I'm right and mm. I wouldn't back down. Good and, drama skills. Yeah. <laughs> and this guy said to me, well, if you're wrong, I'm going to bet you a five minute stand up set. So that's how I, I launched into it is that I lost the bet. I did the stand up gig. Um, and people actually laughed and I got this real thrill out of it. Um, so I just continued to do it, but I, looking back, I feel like it was meant to be a stepping stone to radio. I don't ever think I was meant to be a comedian. I think it was just meant to open up new doors for me and, um, and to give me some confidence and to try something different. What's the best joke that you've delivered? (laughs) <laughs> I don't know if it's appropriate. <laughs> um, oh, it's very appropriate. Okay, well, oh, it's on the internet, so I can't hide it anyway. But uh, I used to do a set about um, black widow spiders and how they eat, the female eats the male after she's had sex with him. Mm-hmm. And um, And after doing some research, I discovered that the males basically know that that's their role in life. Like they know what they're going into. So when she leads them into the bedroom, they know that they're going to get one good session here and then they're going to die. Um, And because they know that that's their role, um, I used to end my set on the joke that, you know, these spiders, um, that the men, they just know that that's what's, you know, start again. These spiders just know that that's what's meant to happen. So, once she's had sex with him, if if she doesn't eat him straight away, he will actually force himself into her mouth. And I thought, yes. how is that different from any date I've ever been on? Hey, hey. Hey, zing, zing. <laughs> I'm here all week. Try the fish. <laughs> <laughs> and my boyfriend oh, now man. really hates um, that set because very few sets of my comedy were ever recorded, but someone videotaped that one and put it up on YouTube. Wasn't me. Um, and, uh, he's horrified to think that his parents might see it one day or even horrified that I invited my parents along on the night to see it live. Oh, and here's you joking about blowjobs. 
I feel like my parents have had to be pretty open-minded when you have a daughter who kind of, you know, is in in any kind of theatre, comedy, you know. My dad used to joke saying, he's been to so many of my theatre shows, why do guys keep getting their penises out? It's just mm. something to do with independent contemporary theatre. It happens. Well, in and of themselves, and, and comedians have spoken about this at great length before, penises are humorous. Well, it's all in the delivery. <laughs> certainly, if you go and see any new comedian trying out material for the first time, it will inevitably be about them having sex, them masturbating, or um, them trying to get a girlfriend. It just seems to be the common thread. Which is really awkward for young female comics. <laughs> well, Unless they're lesbian. Well, yeah, and, you know, you just, <laughs> you just deliver what you can. I mean, let's face it, female comics, the audience are already looking at you like they hate your guts. So yeah. you've got to win them over in the first couple of minutes. Like if that, probably you've got 30 seconds for them to warm to you. If you're not endearing, they won't even give you the time of day. Do you listen to much radio yourself? Yeah, I do. Uh, I I tend to listen to... I used to listen to a few podcasts, but I don't seem to follow that much anymore. Um, I tend to really just listen to what the competitors have got going on, um, what yep. everyone else is talking about, just to get a sense of what makes our show different and to try and commit to what our show is about. You know, that we that our show commits every day to being funny, uh, versatile and connected. And I think I'll just listen to the others to sort of see how whether they're ticking those boxes and whether we still are. When you listen to competitors and those sorts of things, no names, no pack drill, what stands out as something that they might do really well? Oh, look, I think I think there's a lot of things that other shows do well. I think there's some great teams with some really good dynamic and that's really mm-hmm. hard to put your finger on exactly what that is and I'm sure that's what – radio, you know, content directors all over the country have a problem with is because you could take isolated people who have have good voices or have good stories to tell or have good comic timing or whatever it is, but that doesn't mean that they'll work with other people. It doesn't mean that, that, that you put two or three people together in a room and it just zings, you know. Um, so I think there's some really good dynamics in Perth particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I, I don't know. I think I think every show does have a different sound and a really different demographic. I suppose if you were listening in Sydney and Melbourne, and I do listen to the big stations there and listen to their podcasts, um, they're going for a more similar demographic. So perhaps that that's a little bit harder, whereas here I feel like we're a little bit separated from it, which makes it a little bit easier to just to commit to who you are and who your team is. What then makes it works so well in the, the trio dynamic that you're in now? I think that we have pretty clearly defined roles. Um, so even though we all get to be ourselves, um, we don't tread on each other's toes very much, you know. Um, we know that that Shane is the funny guy and any way that I can help with that, anything that I can help set up to lead him to that or anything that I can, you know, give reaction to what he says that will help um, you know, will will happen on its own. Um, and, you know, Clairzy is the really, he's the, the sweetheart, the really responsible guy. And I think, you know, and, and I guess I'm a mix between 
the powerful female, but also very compassionate. Um, so I think that what really works for us is the fact that we are quite different. So it's really easy to find material in the fact that I'm really compassionate and Shane comes across as the guy who who isn't <laughs> going to, you know, who isn't going to turn up at the charity. And it's not, you know, it's not necessarily true. He is a, a sweet man, but it's, I think that there's just something in what happens when we step into this room together, that even though we're ourselves, we're a slightly, we've highlighted particular areas of ourselves that we like to play on. Yeah. How do you guys as a team, given you spend so many hours in a, a small glass box uh, together, how do you handle conflict? Look, it's never easy. It is never easy. And there's no surefire way for every team. You, ha- I think that the only way to do it is to um, treat people, well, just give everybody respect, but really deal with the individual side of things. Like some people you can talk straight with, other people you have to dress it up a little bit. You know, um, as a team, we don't always get it right. But we, the one thing that we have learned is if you don't deal with the conflict, it gets so bad. Like it can get really over something silly because you, Mm. and you should have just spoken up and said, Hey, you know, that bit before you made me sound stupid on air or Hey, that thing when you did this, I don't think it was very responsible or whatever. Um, If you don't bring it up, you start looking for flaws in them. It's the same with any relationship, you know, with your friends or your family or your partner um, or your boss, once you're looking for flaws, you know, like in a housemate, within th- six weeks you have to kick them out because you just can't stop finding things wrong with them. <laughs> so we try to be really honest and we try to be upfront. And I think our team have done a lot of, um, a lot of, we take preventative measures. So, for example, yeah. if there's something going on in our lives, maybe there's, you know, there could have been a death in the family, there could just be problems going on at home, there could be something we just try to be really upfront. So we just turn up at work and we say, I'll say, hey guys, so you know, I'm really fragile this morning because this thing has happened to me and I'm I'm not on my game. And they will go, okay, great. And the two of them will look after me. So on air, they won't leave me hanging. Um, they'll keep everything light. They'll be forgiving of me if I'm a bit dismissive or a bit vacant, um, mm-hmm. you know, when prepping the show. Like, so I think that just helps everything. It helps it from getting to that next level where you have to resolve the conflict. Radio is notorious for pandering to man, children and their egos, <laughs> uh, particularly the ones that, you know, lead ratings, winning, you know, breakfast shows and those kinds of things. Yep. How do you as a strong female voice in that context deal with that because I would imagine it's very easy for radio uh, content directors to be dismissive of the female talent versus the male talent, which is incorrectly perceived as being more important. Yeah, look, I, it's interesting because from the inside, I would say it's not viewed that the men are more important than the women. Um, in fact, and particularly on our show, you know, our demographic is female skewed. Uh, mm. Not by much. It's a really nice blend. Our listeners are, are almost down the middle, but there is a bit of female skew there. Um, and it's really important, I think, to have that female voice um, of someone who's not just the laugh track and someone who has got something important to say and someone who has got a brain and someone who has, um, 
you know, can also stand up for themselves. And I, and I like that the demographic, sorry, the dynamic that I have with Clairsey and Shane is that they can pick on me like they're brothers, but there is a level of respect there. They don't, um, they never say anything that's hurtful or harmful, you know. Um, and so I think that my reaction, the way I handle things is what puts the audience at ease. So a lot of people might not be okay with what the boys said, but the way that I react is what's important because it shows that I'm not being railroaded, I'm not being mm. manipulated, I'm not, um, and I'm not being picked on, you know, like I'm not being bullied. Um, and I think part of me, and I, I don't know if this is a cop-out answer for you, but part of this is just in who I am. I think it's yeah. so much in my nature that I am someone who stands up for justice. I am someone who is pretty empowered and, and confident. And so a lot of those things, I don't know what the tactic is to handle it. I just handle it. Um, I think it's just part of my nature to be to be that person and, and to push through for what I think is fair and what I think is right. What are you going to achieve in the next 12 months? Hmm. Well, it's certainly the game is always there to be number one, um, to be number one in every survey uh, in the city. Uh, and we've just reached that again recently, which was nice after a short stint on on two, <laughs> on the second position. Uh, so that's always there. I think I just want to, I want to keep improving and I also want to be more present, I think. I think it's really easy in a job like this to, even though it's it's long hours and it's hard work and some people might not mm. think that. They might think that it's just you come in and you talk on a mic and whatever. It's, I suppose that also brings with it some complacency. And I don't want to be that person. So I think my focus for the next 12 months will be to always be on my game. And and personally, in my personal life, I want to be fitter and healthier. <laughs> Start of a radio head track. Fitter, healthier, more productive. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and I'd like to branch out. I keep telling myself that I'm going to do, this year's going to be the year of voiceover work. And this year's going to be the year that I MC more stuff. And mm, I don't think I've been that dedicated so far. I think <laughs> I could probably lift my game on the things that I've <laughs> said I'm going to do and haven't followed through with. Well, I guess when there's a lot on your plate, it's not difficult, but it just means that the you know time demands are such that fitting in these extra things means something else has to give, right? Yeah, and it's always... A, a thing of balance. I always am just going, how do I get the most out of my life and not feel like I have to sacrifice too much, but also not let myself down? I'm very naturally ambitious. Um, so uh-huh. if I if I connect with something and I want it, I'll do whatever it takes to get it. Um, but life changes and your priorities change too. So, you know, eight years ago when I got into radio, I didn't know how long that career would last. I thought this is an opportunity for me, but radio could last, you know, 20 minutes. I could be in this thing and not finish the show. 
or I could be doing it for a year or I could get 20 years. And so that's part of the reason why I gave up comedy and theatre because I thought this opportunity is only going to come up once. I can ride the wave really hard while it lasts yep. and then see whatever the rest of my journey, like wherever I can go from there. And I feel like I'd land on my feet and everything would be okay. Um, but now I sort of, I just want to be the best at what I'm doing, but I've also reached an older part in my life. I'm eight years older and now I'm like, oh, okay, I want to have children and I want to do these things in my personal life as well. So it's about finding that balance and keeping that passion for my career and yet also going, how do I make this happen so that I can have a family and, and you know, get both of those things? Well, there's, look, there's, there's always things for us to work on, Kimber, and I, I think you're an, an entirely capable woman that is completely valued, uh, and I thank you for your time and for sharing uh, that that you have with us today. You are on Twitter at Kimber Cahill. Are there any other social accounts you want to own up to? I, I do have a public Kimber Cahill um, Facebook page, but... I post, I do post on it, but I don't have many followers. I haven't pushed it much or anything, but I have, I actually have you to thank for going on Twitter in the first place, Mulkey, uh, because I was not game enough to go on Twitter because I didn't think that anyone would care about anything I had to say. Um, and so you started a fake Kimber Cahill Twitter account. <laughs> <laughs> and a bunch of people started following me and your updates were hilarious, written in first person as though it was me. Um, they were so funny that when you said, okay, here's the password to your account and I'm giving it back to you, go forth and be strong on Twitter, I felt a little bit of sadness because I kind of, I really enjoyed following my alter ego that was Steve Malk. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I, um... I've tried to do my best. I've I've got to get back onto it. I have been doing a few posts lately and so I've got to get a bit more involved. But um, I really do have you to thank for the world of Twitter because without you, it, it just, I wouldn't have been able to uh, embrace it as easily as I did. Well, Kimby, you get out of it what you put into it and my ghostwriting skills are for hire. <laughs> you know what was also great is I love the number of people that just went, what, it's not really your account, I'm pulling out, and then went, Actually, no, the person who's being you is really funny. Uh, I was like, yeah, just, just stay on it. Keep watching. Keep, you know, keep being a part of it. And eventually I'll take the account back over. <laughs> oh, well, you yeah, know, all, all good things must come to an end. Like this podcast, Kimber. This has been the humans of Twitter. And I can confirm that at Kimber Cahill is indeed human. <laughs> Thanks so much for your confirmation. <laughs> <laughs> it's validation. It is indeed. Thanks, Mulkey.